want to welcome you guys to Tomball Bible Church and uh, wish you a Merry Christmas as we kick off our uh, Christmas season, as we walk through the scriptures together in preparation for the coming of the Lord Jesus. Uh, this season we're doing a series we've called Generous, the God who gives. And, and, and this week I want to talk for a moment about the surprising generosity of God, about how Christmas at its core really is something we never expect. I mean, I know it comes every year at the same time, and we have a lot of the same traditions, and we do a lot of the same things, and we sing a lot of the same songs, and we read a lot of the same scriptures. But embedded in all of this tradition and repetition of the things that we do every year are some surprising realities that no matter how many times we're aware of them, continue to surprise us. I want you for a moment to close your eyes and think about something. Just close them right there. No one's going to, well, we've got some guys that are probably going to lift a few things of value, but, but for the most part, you're safe. Just close your eyes and think about a Christmas surprise that you experienced. If you can, as best you can, try to envision that moment, whatever it was, uh, whether it was a gift, uh, someone being home for Christmas that you didn't expect. And that moment of joy and elation when the surprise was revealed to you. It's a pretty exciting moment. I want you to come back with me here. And I'm going to ask you to step away from that memory for a second. We all have memories like that. One that I can think of in recent years was uh, really exciting for me. My wife kind of got on some clandestine activity to decide... And to discern what I wanted for Christmas more than anything and generously give it to me. I think I'm a relatively difficult guy to buy gifts for. Um, because my list of things that I would like is, is quite small. And all of the things on the list are quite large. And so, if you were to ask me, Skeet, what would you like for Christmas? And I were to give you just a flat, honest answer. I would say a 1968 Ford Mustang GT. That's what I would say. And that's about a $20,000 gift. So you could imagine that there's been few takers on that. I did get one time a Matchbox car that met the description. Didn't drive the same. So a few years ago, uh, Leisha concocted this plan to really surprise me for Christmas. Um, If you're not into hunting, you won't understand this. So just pretend I'm talking about something that intrigues you. Leisha reached out to the guys in our small group who I was told I needed to give more credit. So they were really the brains behind this operation, according to them. Um, and, and, and found a way to find out what I really, really wanted. And so one of the guys entered into our group text where we share pictures about things that we've shot and asked, hey, guys, if you could get any gun, what, we, what would you get? What's missing from your collection? And so Leisha found out the answer to that question, which was a Remington Model 700 270, uh, which is uh, the gun that my dad used. The 700 model is is an American classic. And a guy told me, actually between services, that the 270 wasn't sufficient, that I needed a 300 Win Mag. And I just let him know that I'm actually a good shot. (laughs) I I didn't need the additional firepower, but I appreciated his input. Um, with all that said, so, so she found out this is what Skeet wants for Christmas, a Remington model, 700. And so she goes out and she has one of the guys purchase it for me. And she doesn't just do that. gets like the, the, the nicer model, the BDL, if you follow this stuff. And so it's, it's far better than what I would have purchased myself. 
So she's got this amazing gift for me that is something that I would have wanted and never done. And then uh, I open a gift on Christmas morning, the last gift in the pile, and I get an empty box that has a note card that tells me to go somewhere else. And in that spot in the house, I get another clue. And I go through this uh, wild goose chase, end up at uh, the gun closet, the gun cabinet in my closet where uh, my new rifle is. And with that, attached to it, a gift card to, uh, I think, Gander Mountain, where I can go get uh, the scope that I'm going to need. And I want you to think about God's providence for a moment, because the day after Christmas, I'm buying a Nikon Pro Staff at half price, putting that on, and the day after that, I'm at a friend's ranch shooting an eight-point. God is good. (laughs) It couldn't have been better. And so it was surprising. It was surprising because... I would have never done it for myself. It was better than anything I expected. It shattered uh, my expectations. We all have stories like that. Uh, You guys that that don't know, uh, my wife's grandparents live with us. And and so Mr. Carter was here in the first service. We call him Peepaw. And uh, Peepaw said, I want to tell you a story. He caught me afterwards. He said, in 1934, uh, he was a boy. He's the oldest of seven sons. Grew up in the Mississippi River Delta. Family was uh, sharecroppers. And during the uh, middle of the Depression, his father had gotten a job for the WPA, which was a, a, a public administration basically to put people to work during the Great Depression and basically made enough money that combined with sharecropping and squirrel hunting, they fed the family. So there was going to be no Christmas. It's at Christmas Eve. A group of Boy Scouts came walking up the door with a four-by-four box full of presents for every one of them. He said he'd never forget that moment, that surprise. And, and here's why I bring up these stories. Is, is One, I think they remind us of God's grace to us in the past. And I also believe that some of us right now, today, are in, in need of one of those surprises. One of those moments that changes what life is like and shatters our expectations. So we want to jump into the Christmas story this morning because I believe from the beginning that Christmas has always been surprising. It's always been a bit of a mystery, this, this story that God would send his only son to die for the sins of really disobedient people to make them his own. In 1 Peter chapter 1, the apostle looks out and, and surveys the story of the Christ event, all of it from the birth of Jesus, his sinless life, and his death and resurrection. From start to finish, and he says this, he said, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicated when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven. And then he ends it with this amazing phrase, things into which angels long to look. That for centuries, men of God, prophets even, searched, longing to see what it is God was up to. Knowing something of the story, but, but not enough to put all the pieces together. And they searched the scriptures and they couldn't see. 
And then we get the story proclaimed to us. You know, the, the old story that we learned from Charlie Brown in Luke chapter 2. And as Luke tells the story of the coming of Jesus, he begins with these words in chapter 2, verse 1. It says, In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph, and the baby lying in a manger. When they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at it, while the, what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. The old story. Now, as we look at the cast of characters in this story, we, we begin to put together what is our nativity scene. And our house is full of these. It's, it's one of uh, my wife's favorite things is to have nativity scenes, not just that, but, but to see different cultural expressions of the story of coming of Jesus. And so we've been able, through people's generosity and trips I've been able to be a part of, to collect some uh, from other countries to see how, how they depict the story of the coming of Jesus. But one of the um, most kind of treasured and coveted nativity scenes in our home is a plastic one that we picked up at Lifeway a few years ago. Because it's one of the ones that the kids get to play with. The others are are in the no-fly zone for the children. This is one that they can interact with. And we have a few. One that's magnetic that goes on the refrigerator and the kids can put the pieces there. But this one uh, is is a plastic one that that they can set it up. And it's fun. They'll tell the story. But something, something incredibly sad happened a few years ago to our little plastic nativity scene jesus was abducted and so for a few years now our nativity scenes has been minus one baby jesus now you don't want to throw it away um because we're just going to lose it again and so uh we have substituted baby jesus at times with lego men uh gi joe has made an appearance in our family's nativity scene and we've kind of just made it work and in god's grace actually last week Uh, In the cushions of the couch, we found little plastic baby Jesus. 
He's got a few nicks, it looks like, from the vacuum, but he's no worse for wear. And he has been returned to his rightful home at the center of our nativity scene. But I want you to do something uh, with me. I want you to think through your checklist of the people that belong in the story. And we're going to go through Luke and we're just going to see who's present and accounted for. The story begins, uh, we have Joseph as the first character brought into the story. Then we meet Mary, his betrothed, who's with child. Then she gives birth to her firstborn, the baby Jesus. Immediately after the birth of Jesus, we meet the angels who are a staple at every nativity scene hovering over the barn. And we find them meeting the shepherds. And the shepherds then rush to see them. And so at this stage of the game, we have Mary, Joseph, baby Jesus, the angels, the shepherds, a stable and various and assorted animals that complete the scene. But someone's missing, aren't they? We're missing some people and some very important gifts. Anybody off the top of their head note who's absent at this moment from the nativity scene? The wise men. There's not a camel in the stable yet. So there's enter into the story actually in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 2. So I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 2 as we complete the scene. In chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. So the wise men entered the scene later. Right, it's unlikely, given the, the timeline of the events, that the wise men and the shepherds bumped into each other in transit. Uh, they are there after uh, Jesus is born. We don't know how old, but probably not that first night when the announcement was made uh, to the shepherds. And they came following him. We know that they brought gifts traveling from afar, and they came to worship him. The interesting thing I think you find here in the Gospel of Matthew is in Matthew chapter 2, verse 2, the first question of the New Testament is asked. And the first question of the New Testament is, where is he? Where is this king who's come to rule with righteousness and justice? You see, they know a bit about the story. In fact, they quote an Old Testament prophecy saying that you, O Bethlehem, and the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers. From you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So the wise men know of the ancient Hebrew prophecy of this king who is to be born in Bethlehem. They know he's more than just a king because they've come to worship him. And here they are. And the question they ask is where is he? Now this is interesting to me. Because the story of the coming of Jesus and nativity, the story of the wise men traveling, doesn't begin at Christmas. The story of Christmas isn't something that takes place in a vacuum. It's something that for centuries God had been building up to. That there had been years and years and years of preparation leading to this night where we get our nativity scenes from. That that snapshot had a story. And the story begins all the way back in Genesis. In Genesis chapter 3, the story of Christmas ultimately begins. The wheels start moving. See, God had created the heavens and the earth. He had placed the man and the woman in the middle of the garden. 
gave them His image and asked them to manage it on His behalf as His representatives to actively express dominion over creation so that God's glory would be seen as they filled the earth and multiplied. Now in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, we find an interesting story. Adam and Eve had just betrayed God. They had just walked away from His command. The one command, don't eat from this fruit in the middle. Because when you do, your eyes will be opened and you will surely die. The serpent deceived them, convinced them that God was in some way holding out on them. And they realized their sin. And in verse 8, it says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the cool of the, of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to them, Where are you? It's the first real question of the Old Testament. Where are you? It's interesting to look at these questions because the first question of the Old Testament is God calling out to man, where are you? And the first question of the New Testament is men who have received a revelation from God asking where it is they can find the Lord. And in the midst of this, you see this amazing, surprising story of God's grace. That Adam and Eve had betrayed God, their maker, who had given them every good thing, who treated them as sons and daughters. They had rejected him, his word and his love. Because of that, they had betrayed him. And yet when God comes to them, he doesn't come to them with the kinds of questions we might expect. When my kids do something that they shouldn't have done or that was foolish, there's different questions that come to mind. And and usually it's, what did you do? What were you thinking? As they get older, the question becomes, what's wrong with you? God's question is very different. They've just betrayed him and God's question is, where are you? I want you to see that God is seeking sinful humanity from the beginning. He hasn't turned his back on them. He hasn't walked away. He hasn't created distance. He's drawing closer. Now, there's going to be consequences for their sin. God's still going to be gracious in the midst of this. God had told them that they would surely die, and yet He doesn't exact immediate justice and kill them. He allows them to continue to live, to enjoy raising children and grandchildren, even though it's going to be harder than it was designed to be. And then He turned to the serpent, and to the serpent He gives judgment. And in the midst of this text in Genesis chapter 3, where God is pronouncing judgment for sin, we find this unique moment of surprising grace. See, in chapter 3, verse 15, God speaks prophetically with a promise. He said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So embedded in this judgment is this promise that one day a seed will come from the woman and that there will be conflict between this child of the woman and the serpent. And that this child of the woman will crush the serpent and the serpent will injure him. Now this vague promise is a promise of a coming redeemer who will ultimately destroy and defeat the deceiver. 
It's a promise of redemption. That's a unique promise because if you look through the scripture, you will find almost exclusively that tracing children lineage or description of the seed of someone is is of the man. So if you read the lineages in the New Testament, you're going to find that that Solomon was the son of David. And you're going to continue father to son, father to son. And in Genesis three, we have this unique statement. That the seed of the woman will come. And will do war with the serpent and defeat him. So God's promise is given to them. And, and I think the, the story of Christmas, of God moving in this way, fulfilling this promise, is surprising simply because it's more than what we deserved. If we were to look at the story and we see betrayal and rebellion and we see God coming seeking the betrayer and the rebel... As the New Testament unfolds more clearly our position and standing before God in Ephesians, we get a stark declaration of just where we stand before a holy God. What do we deserve from Him? What should we expect from Him? Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. I want to just pause there. When the Scriptures set out to communicate the facts of our case as we stand before God, the Scriptures say that we were dead in our sin, in opposition and rebellion against God. That we were enslaved to our sinful passions and desires, and that we gladly and willfully pursued them in opposition to Him. And it says, by nature... We were children of wrath. And there's this interesting thing that's going on here. The scriptures are telling us two things about what it means to be sinners. That first, we are sinners by choice. That we choose sin. We pursue sinful passions. And second, that we are sinners by nature. That that we have kind of this bent since the fall towards sin. We are sinners by both nature and... And choice. And what that means is that we sin because we are sinners, and we are sinners because we sin. And our right standing before God, the scripture describes with these two words, these three words actually, that that are surprising a term, children of wrath. That's what we are deserving of. The thing I love about Ephesians 2 is the scriptures don't leave it there. They they create this picture that says, okay, this is you before God. These are the facts of your case. You are deserving of nothing more or less than infinite judgment for your sin against a holy God. And then with the word but, he shifts gears and says this, but... God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So what are we deserving of? We're deserving of judgment, but God is rich in mercy and he's given a gift to us of grace that saves 
And Christmas is surprising because God's grace exceeds anything we could reasonably expect from Him. He offers us forgiveness and mercy as a gift, not something we earn. See, we're not relatively good people who who need to just do a few more good deeds in order to tip the scale so that God will be pleased with us. The Scripture points a far different picture and says there's nothing you can do. In fact, you're dead in your sin until He makes you alive in Christ. It's God's grace. It's a gift. Freely given. Received by faith. That's it. And if forgiveness and mercy weren't good enough, Galatians chapter 4 presses further in verse 3. It says, In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. So we, we were enslaved to sin. And joyfully enslaved by it. But verse 4 continues, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth this Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And so built into the gift of Christmas is the coming of Jesus, the seed of the woman, to crush the serpent, so that we might be forgiven and receive mercy, but not only declared not guilty, we go home with the judge as a son, with all rights of being an heir, with an inheritance that is kept secure, protected and guarded for us in heaven till the day of our redemption. We're not just declared not guilty. We're given a family. And our Father is the King of heaven and earth. And Christmas is amazing because when you consider what we deserve and what we have received, the gap is so infinitely large that we can't help but be stunned by it. Christmas should never get old. It should always be surprising. Because we should always see the distance between what we deserve and what we have received. We were disobedient and enslaved to sin, joyfully pursuing all of its passions and receiving hardship and torment and difficulty from it. And Jesus entered into our suffering and stood in our place to earn our redemption and adoption. The second thing that makes Christmas so amazing is not just the distance between what we deserve and what we received, is the distance between what we expected and what we received. I want you to, if you can, transport yourself back to the Judean hillside, there with the shepherds the night the angels came and heralded the birth of Jesus. They were going about their business watching sheep, and an angel appears out of nowhere. The scriptures tell us that they're afraid and the angel comforts them and says, fear not because I I bring you good news of great joy today. For unto you this day in the city of David is born a savior who is Christ the Lord. And the shepherds are stunned by this message. It's a moment of great joy, their hopes and longings being fulfilled for a redeemer to come. And as that is sinking in, the night sky is filled with an army of angels who begin to sing the praises of God and they sing this glorious hymn. A hymn about the grace of God. About peace on earth and God's favor on sinful men and women. They race to see the child, but in the midst of this proclamation, you know that the expectations of the shepherds have been shattered. 
Why would this message be proclaimed to them and not in the palaces and homes of prominent and wealthy families? And something about the message is different from what we expected. You see, the people were expecting a Messiah to come. That's not a surprise. For years they had been waiting for a Redeemer. And God had given them hints about what it was going to be and who would come and when He would come. But never more than hints. And through the prophet Daniel, God had communicated to them that there would be four successions of of Gentile or non-Jewish kingdoms that would rule over them oppressively. And Rome is the fourth kingdom. And so there's an expectation, a sense of waiting that someday, any day, God might raise up a redeemer. And the people expected that he would come kind of in the vein of, of a guy like Moses. See, Moses had been used by God to deliver the people out of slavery in Egypt. And the people expected that a guy like Moses would come someday, a military and political leader that would establish the kingdom of David in a temporal way, in a way that they could see and experience, and that the Romans would be run out. They expected to see that, but they got something more. They they didn't get another Moses. They got Christ the Lord. Which is a phrase never used to describe Moses Never used to describe these kinds of leaders to call him Christ the Lord. That day the Lord came to them. And they were stunned. I don't know what the shepherds understood. I don't know what they were thinking. But I know this from their response. Is that it was richer and deeper than they expected. The Scripture tells that everyone who heard the news wondered about it. That's a unique response when something you've expected for years happens. Celebration makes sense. We expect it to happen and God's going to do this thing that He's promised and so we celebrate. But wonder sets in when it's something mysterious, something deeper than what we expected. And the response of both the shepherds and everyone who heard the news was wonder that the Lord had come as a baby. It's unexpected. It shattered our expectations. And I want to tell you, I believe, based upon 1 Peter chapter 1, that the shepherds were not the only people surprised that night in Bethlehem. See, 1 Peter chapter 1 told us that the story of Jesus was something into which the angels longed to look. That God had kind of kept the story for Himself. And that the prophets of old and that the angels didn't expect what God was about to do. The idea that the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, would take on human form and humble Himself to enter into our suffering so that He might redeem us. Even the angels were stunned. And so when they appear over the hillsides of Judea that night, I believe they're singing a song that they've just learned. Because God has kept this. And the angels rejoice in wonder at the revelation of the good news that Jesus would come, the Son of God, entering into human form, dying for the sins of men and women like us, and rising again in glory. The angels longed to look into this, and God had just let the cat out of the bag for them too. And all of heaven and earth stood in wonder at the news they had heard, because God is a God who shatters expectations. His generosity is surprising, even if you have a hint of what is coming. Isn't it just like God? 
to never quite do what we expect, but to always do something better. What we learn here is that God is a God who shatters our expectations with something richer, deeper, and more beautiful. Sometimes more difficult, but always better. And second, we learn that God is exceedingly gracious. He just gives better to us than we deserve. In John chapter 1, when the apostle looks upon and reflects the coming of Jesus, he doesn't tell the story in terms of of Mary and Joseph moving from place to place. He tells the story in terms of the Word of God becoming flesh. And as he closes that section in the Gospel of John, these are the words that we get in chapter 1, verse 16. And from His fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And we need to just zero in on this phrase. We have received grace upon grace. That from Jesus we have received grace to the power of grace. An exponential outpouring of the goodness of God upon undeserving men and women that can't be measured, that goes on for infinity, that we just delight in and stand in awe of that we have received grace upon grace because the law came through Moses but grace and truth has come through Jesus and and that, that God has smashed our expectation and given to us far better than we've ever imagined in Jesus and so Christmas should stun us all It should stun us all, even though we've sung the song a million times before. It should stun us all, even though Luke 2 is not new. That every time we hear of the story of the coming of Jesus, the Son of God entering into human history as a weak, lowly infant, that the God of heaven and earth gave up glory in the worship of angels to become a member of the working poor, to be mistreated, beaten, and murdered for our sin, that that whole story should always stun us. It should always bring back the fondness of the grace of God. There's two things that are surprising about God that I want you to see here and I want you to to settle in your hearts this Christmas season. The first is that that God surprises us because He's better to us than we could imagine. And the second is that God surprises us because He's always a God who enters into our suffering with us and redeems us from it. See, some of you are here today and you're really in that spot where like, I could use one of these Christmas surprises. Something that radically shifts the way life is. And look, I don't know what God has in store for you, but, but this is what I can tell you is that God in the Christmas story has proven as fact that he enters into the suffering of his people and that he will walk with them until he rescues them from it. God is present. And God is good. And God will surprise you. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your grace to us today that's surprising. That you've given to us exceedingly better than we could ever ask or imagine. Far beyond what we expect. God, I thank you that you're a God who never quite does what we think you should. That you're a God who surprises us with with something better and richer. Sometimes more difficult, but always good. Father, I pray that in the midst of that, that you would give us a hope and a joy for what you're going to do, not only this Christmas season, but for all of our days until your son returns. 
Father, we pray that in the midst of this, that you would remind us each day of your son's willingness to enter into our suffering so that we might follow his lead to join in the suffering of other people and to be the hands and feet of Christ as his body to walk with them through this until you redeem. Lord, we pray that you would move mightily and transform our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.